Hello there, gentle listener. This is Omen Said. And this is Nick McGill. Together, as you probably know, we are Feckless Momes. And we are here to talk, talk, tall to me, to you. <laughs> that's, that's right. We are recording this in the future of the tall, the talk tall to me progression. And we wanted to cast our voices backwards to where you are to tell you about something exciting that didn't exist when we were recording this episode, which you're about to enjoy. Yeah, so so we have a Patreon. And, and I know everybody has Patreons. Everybody has a monthly subscription. So I'm not going to sit here and beg and plead. But what we are going to do is... I'll beg and plead, Nick. Omen will beg and plead. But we're, we want to describe to you what you get with the Patreon to maybe entice you to join in the fun a little bit early uh, before, uh, rather than waiting to get to the episodes where we talk about our Patreon in the future, but that's our past, your future. That's right. At the $1 amount, you get a lovely feeling. It's it's warm. It's fuzzy. Uh, I would I would liken it to butterflies upon your chest. Yeah. And for the $5 amount, you get the real goods, sis. Oh, mercy. You get access. The big thing is you get access to our Discord. And that is where you can talk tall yourself to your heart's content along with all the other tall skulls who have subscribed. There are some lovely people literally from all over the world there yeah. who chat about Jethro Tull, their cats, food, tall news, Prague, music, not yeah. just tall additional music the episodes at hand they tell us all the things we've done wrong uh-huh you too can tell us what we've done wrong yeah well you can do that for free yeah in addition to that it also grants you access to two additional podcasts and if that's right if you subscribe now you do have access to the back catalog and we'll get the new ones as they come out I mean what what are those what are those podcasts uh well one of them is talk tall with me where uh-huh. we talk tall about the correspondence that we have from our listeners. We got so much correspondence, we had to create a whole new podcast just dedicated to that. So we talk about things from the Discord, things that people have written us. And the other one, Nick, is... Outtake Tull to me. That is my personal favorite. That is just all of the cutting room floor garbage that we could not fit into an actual podcast, but I can't throw away because it's a biohazard. So I have to do something with it. (laughs) Zero nutritional value, now with flavor, and just a little treat for you to enjoy. Don't tell your dentist. New and, what's the opposite of improved? Worsened. New and worsened flavor, I would take (laughs) tell to me. So that's what you get. You also, there are other fun things we do. Uh, we occasionally do a, a live listening party where we yeah. listen with other people on who are Patreon subscribers to a live tall recording. We sometimes have had votes on merch. So it's an ongoing community. It's a lot of fun. And we highly recommend that you join. We invite you. We humbly invite you to join us on the Patreon and enjoy. And enjoy. I'm Nick McGill. And I'm Omen Said. And, and we, we are uh, Feckless Mo- <laughs> Welcome to Talk Tall to Me. 
Here on Talk Tall to Me, Nick and I are going to venture through the entire catalog of Jethro Tull. That's 22 studio albums, about 200 songs total. And if we finish those and you are desperate for us to talk tall to you more, there are nine live albums and we don't even know how many bootlegs. That's right. Uh, A song at a time, chronologically through the tall library, um, it will be years. Both of us have agreed not to die until we finish this project. Good point. Good point. So we're starting from the bluesy beginning all the way in 68. Um, We're going to go through the prog rock concept years, then the less than stellar synth filled 80s um, to that upturn in the 90s for like Crest and Catfish. Those were really good. Oh, yes. And then the plateau in the aughts that gave us the Christmas. Well, the Christmas album isn't that terrible. But yeah, the plateau in the aughts and maybe a couple more from the, the teens. And who knows from there? Like, like Omen said, we will, we have plenty to choose from. Why don't we jump right into the very first studio Jethro Tull album? This was 1968. This is the only album for a number of reasons. Um, this is the only album that has Mick Abrahams on guitar. Um, and he actually helped to write a couple of the songs. This is the only studio album where uh, Ian Anderson is, does not sing lead vocals on a song, which is, is taken over by Mick Abrahams. Which isn't to say that he, he doesn't sing lead vocals on most of the songs, but there is a song where someone else sings lead vocals, which is, as you're saying, totally unique within the, the discography of Tall. Uh, the other note that I wanted to say, um, that in the liner notes of the original album... It says, this was how we were playing then, but things change, don't they? Oh, interesting. And people think that that's a reference to Abraham's really bluesy influence on the album. Right. Uh, the next one, even in stand-up, there's, there's some bluesy, but right after that is Benefit, and it's so different. Yeah, well, and that's, I think, you know, part of my appreciation for the, the music of Jethro Tull is that it is so fluid and flexible throughout the years that they, they mm. incorporate so many different styles, so many different musical traditions, so many different instruments, so many different musicians. Yeah. Oh yeah. And you know, all of them are sort of channeled through the flume valve. That is the intellect and talent of Ian Anderson, if you will. Hashtag flume valve. Um, I had mine removed. Uh, the is that is that the little spit valve thing on a trumpet or did you just make that up? No, a flume valve is is yeah. uh, it's a propulsion device where you you um, you <laughs> you can you force water uh, from a large chamber into a smaller chamber and into a smaller chamber so that the pressure builds and builds and then is finally funneled out through a, a focused point. That's that's how that's how you kill people. <laughs> that, that's your weapon of choice. That's also how you how you play a flute interestingly oh that's how he does it you make your mouth into a flume valve you got to have a tarp (laughs) or or just play outside basically the lineup for this was released in 1968 uh songwriting we have of course ian anderson and mick abrams abrahams i yeah i always thought it was abrams and maybe it is pronounced abrams we'll do a take of both and I'll include them both because I, I don't know if I'm going to go that far to the research. 
but I think I think I've heard him refer him to him as Mick Abrams. Mick Abrams. Okay, great. Let's let's go with that. All right. And uh, and again, like we mentioned before, that's where we hear that that really solid R and B and jazz from Mick Abrams. Right. Um, Ian Anderson uh, is on lead vocals. He's on flute. He's on the mouth organ. He's on his legendary claghorn. That's not a euphemism. Did did Ian Anderson invent the claghorn? Is that something that he invented? This is a quote from Ian Anderson himself. Uh, my instrument lineup increased to include a hot water bottle, alarm clock, tin whistle, and the mysterious and almost legendary claghorn. And that is a capital C. That is a proper noun claghorn. <laughs> the resultant bastard offspring of an unlikely midnight pairing of ethnic bamboo flute and a saxophone mouthpiece. That's right. That's who it, that's what it was. At the bottom was taped the plastic bell end of a child's toy trumpet and the whole thing wrapped in layers of parcel tape to hold it all together. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, Dharma for one is, is the most known for that, but I, it, um, Excellent. I think he does play it once or twice in, in this was as well, if not a couple others. Right. And then we have Mick Abrams, uh, guitar backing vocals, nine string guitar and the lead vocals on move on alone. Yeah. Right, right, right. That's right. He is lead on move on alone. Uh, then we got Glenn Cornick on bass. Then we have Clive Bunker on drums, the Hooter, and the Charm bracelet. Please remember, it was the 1960s. I, yeah, I'm really curious to know. I will be listening for the Charm bracelet. I'm not sure what <laughs> we're going to be hearing there. Um, and an additional musician, uh, not in Jethro Tull, although I think I've seen his name uh, on a couple times after that, on the French horn and some orchestral arrangements. Huh. Yeah. Great. Should we dive in with the first song? Um, we're going to hop into My Sunday Feeling, the first song off of the first album of Jethro Tull. Omen, how do you feel about uh, My Sunday Feeling? What What is your Sunday feeling, Omen? There's so many things that that song... Uh kind of encapsulates for me i mean i mean on one level you have the lyrics which are really talking about the the morning after having been out to the pubs and you can easily imagine you know ian anderson was 21 years old yeah 21 years old when this album dropped and london in 1968 was a crazy place right yeah and you know it um London is still a crazy place now. And I think that I, I, I just, I can't even imagine what it would have been like with um, all the, just the social energy that was happening at that point. I mean, there were, there were massive protests uh, happening for a number of social causes. Mick Jagger was in London. David Bowie was in London. I mean, it was, it was a hopping yeah. spot. And, and they were all that young. That's right. That's right. And they were playing at some of these big, clubs where a lot of the big bands got their start and so the lyrics and the the kind of feeling of it reminds me of of being in college and being out all night and waking up the next morning and and just really having no sense of of where i was or what i had done and yeah and even though you know ian anderson is is riffing on this very traditional blues format and and bringing that and using it for what it's meant for, which is to convey a, a, a strong feeling. Mm-hmm. He's already starting to do it with his, his uh, typical innovation there. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to, I want to point out, um, I read that 
even by the time this album dropped, Tull was playing in the same clubs that the Stones were in. That yeah, at least that they had started in. But yeah, yeah they they were already on the circuit of London venues. So twenty one year old, you've been drinking. I don't know. Drinking age was what? Probably eighteen, if not younger. I think it was eighteen, but I don't think it was enforced. Right. Yeah, you've been drinking for years. You're out with your friends playing music. Right. It's it's so all hours. Exactly. Exactly. S- Saturday night, you don't go to bed until four, or you wake up at at two in the afternoon. This yeah. it. The first thing that I wrote while listening, while taking my notes was he's singing what he knows. He's writing what he knows. This is his life. But it's also universal. I mean, it reminds me a lot of Johnny Cash's uh, Sunday morning coming down. Mm, yeah. Which which is expressing a very similar, a very, very similar feeling, even though he's doing it in, in a different way. And there's even some of the similar references to um, cigarettes and, and everything. Yeah. It's the same... The same story, a different language. Totally. But what's so exciting about about this song and about the sound of it is that whereas Johnny Cash takes that feeling and brings and turns it into this extremely mellow kind of soul-rending experience, Jethro Tull has put this incredible energy into it. And so you almost get the, the sensation of of having that confused, disoriented um experience in a city which is which is just seething with life all around you yeah you expect it to be if we're thinking classic blues that that mellow like oh my god i woke up with a hangover but it's more like you're he's he's delivering it he's singing about last sunday it's saturday and he's singing about last (laughs) sunday with that amount of energy exactly can you recall what your impression of this song was the very first time that you heard it. This album for someone who, like we said earlier, even, even though benefit is album number three, like I listened the hell out of benefit and had no idea that tall had this sound from this was absolutely. So I think it's, it's kind of similar in the sense that if someone picks up an album, who the heck is Jethro tall? Let me put it on. Like, this is your first impression song. Yeah. Energy, something it's relatable, but it's also like a kick in the face of energy. And that manic flute in there is a unique sound that, that aside from like the really jazz musicians, you didn't hear a lot of in rock. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and I think that for a lot of people who are probably being introduced to Jethro Tull for the first time, and this is certainly the way that I was introduced to Jethro Tull, it's the rock band where there's a flautist. Yeah, the rock band that includes a flute, and you know, it's it almost can. I I think that when I first heard that, I thought, oh, what an interesting gimmick for a band, and that is what it seems like until you listen to the music, and then you just forget. That's my experience with it, at least. Is you know, you for a split second, you're like, that's odd. They're playing a flute in a rock band, and then you just totally don't care, and you just want more of it. <laughs> yeah, it fits. It flows. It's you're right. It's not. Um, we also had the the luxury of being introduced to Tull 20 to 30 years after they started. So we had an in-depth catalog, but thinking about like someone inviting their friend over to their flat and say, Hey, you need to listen to this band. They have a flute. Totally. Yeah. And this is your only option is this album. Right. In terms of rock and roll. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, but I think that's, that was an interesting point about like, 
it could very easily be a gimmick, but we wouldn't be, they wouldn't be 50, what is it, 50 years now, 40 years now? 68, 50 years. Are we, is this, is this the 50 year mark since? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so they they would not have lasted 50 years were it not for that flute. And that's pretty much at this point, that's all Ian Anderson can do anyway. Well, and it's, you know, I, I, I find it so fascinating because, um, you know, I don't think we'll get there with this, with this episode, but, um, going back to Roland Kirk, um, the jazz flautist who wrote Serenade for a Cuckoo, um, it's really interesting listening to him play the flute because yeah, listening to him play the flute versus Ian Anderson kind of side by side, because when you listen to Roland Kirk, you hear technique and <laughs> you hear practice. Yeah. And Ian Anderson has neither of those things. Taught himself. Yeah. I heard this one time in an interview that he, someone was like, why did you start playing the flute? And he said, well, I walked into a music store one day and I saw it hanging on the wall and I thought to myself, that seems like a good idea. Yeah. That was literally it. Yeah. And yeah, he just sort of, he just sort of muscled his way into making some sounds on it and obviously emulated uh, some of the jazz flautists, especially Roland Kirk. Mm Mm-hmm who were, you know, big at that time, um, but just took it in a new direction. Yeah. And if you, if you go listen to Roland Kirk's uh, Serenade for a Cuckoo, like you can hear Ian Anderson picking that up. Absolutely. I hear Roland Kirk in, in Anderson's playing. Absolutely. He's totally trying to emulate that sound and doing it very well. Yeah. But it's, but he then goes on to create a, a, a really unique sound, even though it's based in the sound that, that was pioneered by, by Kirk. You know, he does, he takes it in his own direction. And I think that that's what is so, I think that that's what kind of keeps me coming back to the albums year after year is the, is the evolution. And it's obviously we're getting way ahead of ourselves, but it's interesting then to hear the later albums at a certain point when he had a young daughter, she was learning to play the flute at school. Either he, I think he was practicing and playing something and she came in and said daddy that's not how you play that note and he's like what do you mean he's been right. playing stuff wrong quote unquote his entire career yeah because he's never been taught and so then he did really get better technique in some of the later albums you know in the, in the 90s and so mm-hmm. and it changes the sound and then you you almost miss the raw expression right almost amateurish kind of brutal handling of the of the instrument there are a lot of factors contributing to that rawness yeah um it's their first album there's a crazy energy um that honestly we don't hear much of after maybe stand up the energy mellows out fairly significantly i think it gets more focused and refined yeah oh yeah 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 in in no way was that um was that a complaint right no i i understand what you mean but but it's it's definitely true i think that that you know, the first albums that I listened to were later on, uh, probably Aqualung and, and songs, songs from the wood. And then, so listening to that and then going back and listening to this, it, it does have this feeling of being not out of control exactly, but, but, um, just kind of thrown out there. Yeah. Yeah. Without a lot of refinement. It's so raw. And I think that's, what's so exciting about this album. And I want to, I just want to disclaimer, like, even though he's, taught himself to play and he doesn't have the style or or technique what have you i could not play the flute on my sunday feeling i couldn't play the flute on anything (laughs) so i just i just want to say like 
he he's doing a bang up job on that freaking flute. Of course, yeah. In no way was I I thinking it's amateurish. Oh no 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 no! It's amazing. Um, the interesting thing as well, listening to it uh, again, is hearing the guitar because even though Mick Abrams only played on this one album, I think that even on this very first song, I'm hearing things that he is uh, innovating that I think go beyond this album to, to Martin Barr that Martin Barr picked up on and, and continued throughout the entire rest of the this discography. Sure. Even though they stray from that bluesy, jazzy feel, that really distinct bluesy, jazzy feel, Yeah, that's still the first two albums of Tall. Yeah. So even though due to creative differences, Mick had to, to split, you're still going to look for someone that can can create your sound because if you're going on tour between this was and stand up, you're playing mostly this was. So you got to have someone who can hit that sound. That's a great point. I never thought of it that way. Yeah, totally. What do you have for, for a library, but, but the stuff that Mick Abrams played. Right. Absolutely. I just want to point out the really neat little tidbit right around three minutes, 12 seconds, the coda kicks in right. in uh, my Sunday feeling. And it, re- it incorporates not even so subtly once you know about it, but um, it incorporates two uh, little bits from some well-known jazz tunes. Um, Henry Mancini's Pink Panther theme, uh, that bass line by Glenn Cornick right at the 312. <laughs> And then uh, the work song or just work song by Nat Adderley and Oscar Brown Jr. Um, if you were to, to go YouTube those and then re-listen to My Sunday Feeling, you'd be like, oh, yeah, I hear it. Yeah. And they're in there and it's, it's just, um, I think that's, that's the icing on the cake of like, this is our first song. Yeah. We're, we're young, we're fresh, we're pulling in Kirk's flute, we're pulling in these jazz themes. And I bet you dollars to donuts that 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 is uh, Abrams doing is is pulling in those jazz themes. Yeah, I mean, I think you said it's it's a it's a real synthesis of so many disparate styles and themes and and ideas that are that come together in um in a remarkably cohesive way. Yeah, my Sunday feeling. I think that about wraps it up for my Sunday feeling. Amazing. Nick and I have known each other for a long time. You noticed in, in the intro, we referred to ourselves as Feckless Moans. Nick, why don't you tell us where that name came from? It's actually connected to Tull in, in an odd way. We were kind of our own burgeoning acting troupe in an acting gig that we did at a Renaissance festival. And a, I don't know if I'd call him a mentor. Certainly, certainly a mentor, I, I, I would say. Yeah. Okay. He was also big into tall. That's right. And one day he referred to us as feckless moms. And for anyone who's curious, um, feckless moms means useless idiots, which we will prove to be as you continue listening to this podcast. <laughs> Bumble- I like bumbling fools. It's a little less um, pejorative. That's true. Yeah. Um, that, but that's right. Yeah. Nick and I performed together at the, at the Sterling Renaissance Festival um, from about 2001 through 2007 i want to say 
I think so. The years are so interspersed and sporadic. Yeah, but, that, but generally that period. Yeah, we. I mean, regardless, we've been creating something together on and off since we were 15. That's right. That's right. And now um, we don't even know how old we are. A lot of tall songs old. <laughs> um, and we, we bonded over a lot of things and tall was one of them. That's right. Because the podcast scene is so barren right now, we figured we'd get in. Well, it's, yeah, well, it's just starting. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't think my mom's even heard of podcasts, so that's... Well, that's probably true. Yeah, that is. <laughs> I just also wanted to make a note that, you know, that um, Nick and I are not tall experts exactly. We are more tall aficionados. Yeah, um, absolutely. You know, we, we have grown up uh, with a love for this music. Um, I don't, I, I just want to cover our, our butts as it were, if we make any factual mistakes. Yeah. We love this music. We are not, you know, uh, historians, a, a historians. Right. Exactly. Yeah. We both had our own individual forays into tall. We, we came into our friendship independently bringing in tall. It's not like either of us introduced tall to one another. That's true. That's true. Although you you were a lot more familiar with a lot of the albums than I was yeah. at the time that we met, and you introduced me to to a lot of specific albums. But um, but yeah, I had actually been introduced to Jethro Tull by a, a high school friend of mine because I played the flute at that time. Mm, right. Yeah. Yeah. What was your What was your first album? Um, I think it was Aqualung. I think I think um, my friend Katie gave me a copy a burned copy back in the days when classic we you know along with a, a mixed cd i think um that that uh and i think on that cd there was maybe one jethro tull song and then and then she gave me a burned album of uh aqualung i'm pretty sure yeah that was my first album Well, thank you for listening to this week's episode of Talk Told to Me. We just wrapped up my Sunday feeling. Come back and listen to us next week when we will be covering the next song on the album, which is what, Omen? Someday the sun won't shine for you. Leave it on a positive note. <laughs> and until then, we will be talking tall to ourselves. And we will be feckless moans. Thanks again for listening to Talk Tall to Me, a Feckless Momes Audio Network production. Your hosts are Omen Said and Nick McGill, produced by Nick McGill.